Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Today, of course, though, we are absolutely delighted to have Thomas Page McBee with his second book, Auteur. Wonderful. Yeah, okay. And um, uh, he'll be in conversation with uh, Ann Friedman. And if you wanted to draw a pie chart of who wore it best between me and Ann Friedman, 50% would say we admire each other's glamour and strong sense of personal style, and 50% would say shine theory. Shine theory is when you meet a woman who is intimidatingly witty, stylish, beautiful, and professionally accomplished, befriend her. And uh, Ann Friedman invented shine theory, among other accomplishments. Um, you'll, you're sure to be charmed by her. but. Um, Thomas Page McBee is widely published um, in the New York Times just recently, uh, Playboy, Glamour, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Um, his work has been named Best Book of the Year by NPR, BuzzFeed, Kirkus Reviews, and Publisher Weekly. Um, Auteur has been so widely praised. It's really, really, really gotten an incredible reception. It has been called a warm hug, an invitation, Brutally honest, a confrontation, enormous, beautiful, slim, tough, hopeful, concise, fierce and delicate, urgent, generous and fearless. Let's please give them a warm round of applause. Wow, thanks for coming out on a Saturday of Labor Day weekend. I'm so flattered that you're all here. That was an amazing introduction. I think, um, maybe the best I've ever gotten. So we're off to a good start. Um, uh, I've been convinced to read a little bit from the book, so I'm just going to read the very literally first two pages, and then we're going to get to talking. And I'm reading Anne's copy, because I, I didn't bring my copy. <laughs> um, November 2015. According to the laws of physics and USA boxing, this wasn't a fair fight. But there we were, two guys past our primes, circling each other in front of 1,700 drunk onlookers in Madison Square Garden, that hallowed hall of American boxing. Since July, I'd bled at the gums and screamed into pillows and almost quit. I'd failed. I temporarily, and to varying degrees, lost my mind, my hearing, and my friends. Also, the guy with the 17 pounds on me could beat bruises across my face. Both of us a messy mosaic of blurred senses, damp armpits, hot lights, tangy throat, rubber mouth guard bite marks, squeaky pivots, spangles of stars. Also that my fists could connect with his stomach and his mind. It would hurt, the stinging price of knowing my body's upper limits. But from now, my muscles harmonized out their combinations as a meditative quiet sucked the cheers out of the stadium. I understood that we were both just sinew and blood and bone and follicles and decay. The truth was, I loved him, even as I danced around him with my hands in the air. I was a new man the first transgender man to fight in the most storied boxing venue on earth, there to close the gap between us, like the fiction that it is. Ugh. I have like a full goosebump. <laughs> um, so I just want to start by asking why boxing? Like tell me the appeal, not just like how the idea began, but like what the appeal was. Yeah. Um, I've always been a big fan fan of boxing, which is weird, because I'm not really a big fan of violence, but if, if anyone here is a boxing fan, uh, maybe you can relate. I just feel like as a sport, 
there's something so um, vulnerable and exposing about watching a fight. Like if you watch, uh, if you watch boxing, you can see almost immediately what people's weaknesses are and what their strengths are. And it is very much like the like literary trope of like man versus man. You know, you're in the ring, and it's like you really see like everything that is about that person. You know, exposed. So something about that, I find it very touching. Uh, so that's why boxing, kind of broadly, but very specifically in the book, um, you know, I had this encounter with this guy in 2015 who tried to street fight me. Um, I don't know how many people here have ever been a, been in a situation where someone's tried to street fight you. It's pretty weird um, if you're just going about having your normal day, going to the bodega, getting ice cream, and then somebody's like screaming at you on the street. And at, at that point in my life, there was this summer where it was like three times this happened to me, and this was the third time, and. In retrospect, my mom had just died and I was like probably walking around pretty angry and like carrying a lot of like weird animal rage or whatever. And this guy just picked up on it or whatever. But I felt like I was just at a limit with like that kind of bullshit since my transition. It was four years in, there had been a million things that had happened and this was like the last straw where I was like, okay, I, I almost got into a fight with this guy for no reason. And then I thought I'm either gonna become this guy or I need to like change my life. And so that's where, the boxing sort of started was me being like, okay, why does this even happen in the first place? And then I trained to fight. <laughs> it all adds up, really. If you think about it. It's yeah, and so like I I want you to to talk a little bit more about that period in time because um, I also loved your first book, which also features as a pivotal as a pivotal pivotal moment uh, you having like a violent altercation with someone on the street. And so like when I read that, I was like, is this just gonna keep happening to you? Oh, like God, are I you processing it. you know, it's just like it seems like it seems like um there's been something about like that type of interaction with a stranger that has led to a few different big shifts for you. Wow, and that's so deep. I what? feel like you and my therapist. I'm a fan of your work. No, I mean that's like really true. It's like both books started because like guys attacked me in the street. You're right. Um and maybe it says something that, like, to me, I, I just, I think I associated men with violence so deeply that both of those things seemed like, well, that's just what happens on some level, you know? Um, the first book is, it, it, the first book is about, like, this moment where um, I get mugged at gunpoint by a guy who goes on to uh, shoot two other men in similar muggings, and, and one of the other men dies. Um, and at the time I was mugged, I had a transition, and I spoke, and when I spoke, he let me go. So in, in my mind, and I think the, the sort of general theory was that, like, he let me go because I wasn't yet male. And this book starts also with a guy trying to hurt me in some sort of way. It's true, and, and I think the theme is that I... I have, you know, I didn't transition until I was 30. I had a lot of anxieties and fears about men, and they were stemmed in the idea of violence. Mm -hmm. And I think in the first book, it was sort of, I was exploring, like, how do I become a man um, even though I'm so afraid of men? And I think in the second book, I, I was thinking a lot about, like, okay, I am a man, and actually a lot of the things that I was worried about in terms of, like, what it is to be a man in the world, those things were true. Like, they weren't wrong. Like, I, I was... Um, Experience my mas experiencing my masculinity in ways that were like problematic as well as beautiful. And so this book is more about like, okay, how do I not become the man who fights somebody back in the, you know, in the street, you know? And so that's, yeah, they are speaking to each other, I guess, in that way. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think that there's, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned that you were four years um, into your 
transition when this second kind of, I'm sure you've had other powerful interactions on the street, but this, <laughs> the, the, the interaction that led to um, you wanting to learn how to box when that happened. Um, and you kind of mentioned like there were some things that you had noticed about yourself as a man that you maybe didn't love or like we're trying to work on how to address. And I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Like what are some things you had noticed and hadn't noticed until you got into the ring? Yeah. So I, I, when I transitioned, I was 30 and I was working as a journalist uh, at the Boston Phoenix. So I was paying a lot of attention to the masculinity crisis, which was like, actually that language has been around for a long time uh, in sociology Decades, right? yeah. circles. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, only pretty recently have we been talking about it in like popular circles. So I, I think I was, but I was really fixated on a sort of in a poetic way on that phrase of the masculinity crisis. Cause I felt like I was in crisis. You know, I felt like my masculinity was in crisis even from the very beginning. And it was very, um, I started testosterone and for me it was like almost immediately there were effects. And so I could chart very quickly, like how my life was different um, which was really overwhelming because obviously so many things were going on personally, but then to be walking around in the world, it's like I would leave my house and um, I would notice, for example, that like if I was walking at, on the street at night, first of all, I could walk on the street at night and not feel scared. Second of all, um, I was scary to other people. Like if there was a woman on the street, she might cross the street to, to not be on the same side as me if it was dark, for example, or um, move out of the car in the subway I'm in if I'm the only person in it. And so those sorts of things were alarming and uh, I got the messages about like what my body meant in space and how it was different pretty quickly and also you know like I felt um, I was very aware that I was being touched a lot less like mm. I, I um, wasn't being hugged as much by my friends or um, or if I met somebody new they always shook my hand first you know or my uncle actually literally said to me I will only shake your hand now because you're a man and he meant it as a compliment um, but that was weird. Uh, and in and, real time, did that feel sad to you? Or like, did it, was it only later that you kind of thought about it? It felt sad to me in real time. And also it felt like he was a, at the time, like a 75 year old man who was trying to show me that he respected me. Um, so it felt bittersweet, but also sad. <laughs> like, and those things sort of, I kept filing them away. And then on, this, on the flip side, like the privileges of being a man were really apparent to me. Um, the New York Times uh, essay that we were, was referred to in the introduction was about, um, you know, in the first six months at a new job, how, and when I went, was in my transition, it was very early on, and my voice changed, and I, when I spoke, I noticed that people just got silent. Um, and as any woman in the room knows, like, when you speak in a work meeting, it is not true that people get silent ever, you know, and I was used to coming at it from, like, having to sort of screw up my per courage and figure out how to talk and figure out the internal politics of a situation and who do I, who can I like sp speak to and speak over and you know, all of that and it was just like magic, you know. Suddenly I spoke and even though I was harder to hear, people were listening to me. And so I was clocking all of those things and feeling like I'm happy to be a man. I'm obviously really happy to be in my body. That's why I'm doing this. It's like, it's a real process but, um, but I didn't want my masculinity or the way I was in the world to be at the like expense of my in sort of integrity, and I felt like it was. I felt like I was in a new, um, like there was body dysphoria, but then I was like now in a situation where I was in like moral dysphoria in terms of like being a person, and that's what the book came out of was me wanting to like explore that, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm just sitting with the term moral dysphoria right now. <laughs> um, you. 
I would love to hear you talk a little bit about your um, decision-making process of like after you found a gym where you wanted to train, how you decided like um, what of yourself to reveal to the people who were training you and training with you and how you made some of those choices. Because I found those parts of the books some of the most interesting. Yeah. So um, I am a trans person who, if, if you Google me, you you know I'm trans. It's uh, It was sort of... Early on, I really was very public about my about disclosing uh, my trans status, and also I never, therefore, have had ex had experiences where people, besides like in passing on the street or whatever, where people didn't know I was trans. And so, in this boxing, this was the boxing was actually in, initially an article I was writing, and I wanted to write about um, white collar boxing gyms and like how these like why people who don't have to risk anything would choose to risk themselves in this exact situation. So I. Uh, I made a conscious choice that was complicated to not tell the people I was training with that I was trans. Um, and part of that was like, I wanted to make sure that the way I was being treated was really reflective of like, you know, there was nothing about the way I was treated that had to do with me being trans. I really wanted to understand this sort of like very socialized, homosocial, um, masculine space without it being mediated in any way. Um, but that, was was complicated for me because I spent a lot of time thinking about passing and what it means and um, and it it was yeah it was really interesting I feel like at the end of it to be totally honest I don't even think this is in the book but I think I came out of it feeling like yeah I am a trans man like that modifier needs to be in front of my my identity it actually is really important to me um, and I don't know if I would have known that if I hadn't sort of spent months and months without that being the, the at the forefront of my mind right. Yeah, and I think that so much of this book, I mean, maybe I also read this as a journalist, but so much of it I um, I can see your like reporting instincts coming out, um, particularly some passages like, um, you do this amazing fact check on like what does testosterone really do to a body and mm -hmm. like what, what do we know can be attributed to it? And yeah. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that because that was a real education for me. Oh, yeah, and that's my favorite fact. Is in it? Book. Yeah. I totally dog-eared that page. It's like yeah. my favorite fact in this because book too. Because it was the most scary... The whole idea of the book is like um, the Zen, the Zen concept of beginner's mind. So in the in in that koan, it's like something like um, in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities, and in the expert's mind there are a few. So what I tried to do is I asked like every like stupid or like uh, basic question I had about masculinity because a lot of I think the the problem with masculinity is you're not supposed to question it at all. Like especially if you're trans or if your masculinity is fragile in some way, you're supposed to just sort of accept it and then disappear into the night and like just. Thank God that people are like seeing you for who you, who you are or whatever. So, my biggest question, my biggest one, for, was like, does testosterone make you aggressive? And related to the street fighting, and related to the guy who tried to kill me, and then related to like my own childhood and my abusive dad. Like I was, it's like I'd gone through this whole process because I was a I was a man and I needed to, but I also felt very scared that the end of the line. And this is just my own stuff, but I was very worried that the end of the line, the big answer would be yes, testosterone makes you into a violent person, and that's just what it does. And so I really tried to um, 
face that fear by doing a lot of hard reporting about what testosterone actually does. And I talked to Robert Sapolsky, who's a Stanford neuroscientist. He's a famed neuroscientist. He like lived with baboons for a year. Um, he's a really interesting guy. Um, Just like him and the baboons? Yeah. He wrote a book it. about it. Yeah. <laughs> so he knows like if you, or, you know, if you want to do your evolutionary biology fact checking, like he's like a guy you can definitely hold up against an evolutionary biologist and be like, this guy knows monkeys, you know? Um, <laughs> but his thing was like, you know, the thing about testosterone is that it doesn't, it doesn't cause aggression. What it does cause is status seeking. So and in 99% of cultures, we reward status-seeking with aggression. But they've done economic studies, like economic games, where um, in order to win the game, you have to cooperate. And in those games, men with the highest testosterone levels are the most cooperative. However, in those same games, if you give men um, a placebo and tell them it's uh, testosterone, they act like assholes and they're really aggressive. So it, to me, it's like that idea that, you know, of course we're organisms and we're responding to the environments around us, but just to, you know, it's, there's so often, especially around trans issues, like there's this sort of, people have this like kind of desire to be like nature versus nurturing, the nature of it all. And I think, first of all, nature and nurture can't be separated. Why are we even doing that thought experiment? That's a side note. Um, <laughs> Third book. <laughs> yeah. Like in what reality is there nature without nurture or nurture without nature? It's like, it's just such a strange, <laughs> strange way of thinking. But anyway, but also like, you know, I think that that idea that, uh, that testosterone is somehow this um, elixir that creates all of this behavior that then justifies things that are really terrible that happened in the world it's it's just not true and I think that to me that was a huge relief but also I you know it made me pretty angry <laughs> um, yeah I I wrote down this quote like uh, so there are, there are, during the time in which you are training um, one of the questions you get asked by the the other guys and they are predominantly guys at this at this gym is you got a fight like are, are you training for a fight yeah um, and and I would love to hear you talk about like what that question meant and why it was important, um, because I think it gets to this idea of like, are you are you a real boxer? Yeah, are right. You, are you real here? Or are you just playing? I don't right. know. Well, and I was really interested in the idea of like real men too, which I think was um, which came up a lot in this context. Like, what is a real man? Right? It's a moving target. Like, there's not actually a way to be it. Yet we all act like we know what it means. Um, and then if you're not a real man, you know, you, you can easily be pointed to as not being a real man. But then if you try to ask someone like, what is a real man? They can't answer you. Um, but in the, in the fighting context, like there wasn't so much that, but there was like, are you a real boxer? And mm -hmm. so there were plenty of people for various reasons who were like training, you know, for exercise or whatever in the, you know, and there's like interesting economics around how these boxing gyms work and class and etc. So plenty of people were coming in and they were doing their like class pass, like, um, exercising, and then there were like the people who were like training for the Golden Gloves or training for whatever, and and those people were given like this kind of credence. I very much felt like I was not a real boxer because I was bad at it, and because I, um, you know, was like doing a charity fight and was a reporter. But it didn't matter to the guys I was training with, and it was interesting because it was like that was the bar, nothing else. Like not if I was good, not if I was real, um, but just like was I training for an actual fight? And it was it was sort of an interesting thing because I felt like, in a way, I felt like that bar seemed kind of fair mm -hmm. like because that putting yourself at risk is what they were interested in are you willing to actually do this or are you just here for fun do you feel like that translates to the are you a real man question like are you putting yourself at risk like in a not yeah. in a way it's maybe commonly defined but maybe how you would be thinking about those terms now yeah 
<laughs> I don't know because I think um, this is where boxing became interesting because the intimacies of boxing were different than what I expected. And one thing I thought would be true would be that the boxers there would be really, the fighters would be really interested in um, how, how good you were, how mm -hmm. tough you were, how, uh, how aggressive or, or crazy or whatever you were. Like I kind of assumed that that would be the measure and there would be machismo around that. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't true. And this is where I think things got interesting and, and, um, and surprised me. You know, I think in a lot of ways, like just the, the desire to do it and the showing up created an intimacy in that gym. Mm -hmm. And I felt more supported by the men in that gym than I've probably felt supported by like any group of people in, you know, since my transition. And that was really surprising. Mm -hmm. So I think, I don't know, I don't know. I think it was more like, are you willing to, um, are you willing to really do this? Or are you just here to like, are you just here? I almost feel like it was actually the opposite. It felt like it was like a filtering mechanism. Like there were plenty of people there who wanted to like have the bragging rights mm -hmm. of like being at the gym, doing the thing. There were plenty of like Wall Street guys, for example, who were, you know, who were trading to, to you know, to who they were there with their clients doing and whatever. And this was like, I think it was like, are you actually trying to do this or are you just here to show off, mm -hmm. you know? And then if you're trying to do it and you, aren't great or you need a lot of help, then there's like a lot of people who are gonna help you get better. And that, that was actually pretty moving to me. Right. Um, during the course of your training, there are a few different things that people in the gym like say about you or, or describe you with. And one of them is like, he's got balls. And the other one is, he's got heart. Um, <laughs> I, would love, I would love to hear you talk about that. And like, and you know, and also maybe how, um, you know, like, like those things are so literal and you like, you do some great like work with those phrases in the book, but um, you know, like uh, talking about a little bit about the physicality part of it and like, you know, all this big picture masculinity stuff that's going through your head and how those things tie together. Yeah, I felt, I mean, it was true that like doing this actual, it, it worked in the sense doing this project worked because every, thing, every single vulnerability I had felt very exposed, like literally. And again, back to like, that's what boxing is. Like you are exposed in your, um, in your weaknesses and then, and then not just exposing them, but you have to turn them into strengths. Like, and that's kind of the cool part about the sport. And like a big weakness or vulnerability I had was like feeling like very conscious that literally when I was changing in the boxing gym, if anyone were to look too closely, like I potentially could be maybe in danger or something, you know, something could happen to me. And uh, I felt like every day was like this sort of, like that was the bravest thing I did really. It was like get naked with these dudes and be like, I hope that nobody is paying attention to what's happening, you know, for me. Um, and so, yeah, I got told I had balls a lot and I don't have balls. So that was like an interesting, uh, <laughs> it's like an interesting thing to like kind of think about and, uh, and to, but to sort of. Everyday metaphor. Everyday yeah. metaphor. Yeah, it really is. But it was, it was kind of profound to like sort of feel like that, I guess to feel the dis difference, the, dis the distinction between like that anxiety I, I was having and then constantly mm -hmm. being sort of called back to like this is, I don't know, I, even though I don't, people feel like I do. And that, <laughs> that sort of felt like the story of my life. Um, and then the heart thing was like powerful because that was like, it's the sweetest compliment in boxing. And it's actually, I think, I think my sense is like, it's sort of the, the biggest compliment. It's like, this is the catch-all um, thing you say about someone when you're saying like, you know, th they are 
capable of something, even if, I don't know, they're capable of something and they are passionate and they can do it, even if they can't do it in the moment, like I believe in them, Mm -hmm. you know? And that, I got that compliment sometimes too and that was really beautiful to me. And I guess it does feel like the sort of tough and tender two sides of like, um, of thinking about masculinity, like both of those things are, I guess, I don't, I don't want to say they're important, but they were both important to the people I was around. Right. And it was interesting to be, to be like, ha- to have people point to me about having both of those qualities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love the contrast. Yeah. Um, so this book prompted me to go to the dictionary, as I often do, and like be like, what is the like Merriam-Webster definition of masculinity? And it's it's one of those dictionary definitions that's just like circular. It's like qualities associated with men, mm-hmm. um, which to me says like, ugh, that's so annoying. Also, um, that there is a great opportunity there, which is to say that everyone who identifies with that label has an opportunity to kind of say like, this is what we would like to be associated with that term, and. Um, I'm just like, you know, if you could kind of wave a wand or whatever, like have some kind of all powerful (laughs) um, way of dictating like, okay, like these are the sets of qualities that maybe you now aspire to or try to exhibit or like hope for all of, you know, people who identify with the term man. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that as like the, the power and burden of shaping that. Well, so much of what being a man means according to sociologists, uh, is like <laughs> this sort of policing about what being a man means. It's like a snake eating its tail. Right. And, uh, and it's interesting because if you think about it, like it, we're all sort of complicitly agreeing to that, even if we don't overtly agree with it, which is sort of the point of the book. Like what if you just make that conscious? And then, and then once you make it conscious, then you actually have, a, I think, a moral obligation. Once that's called attention to, to like start rethinking it and being like, what? well, if I don't, if I'm not comfortable with what being a man means because of how it makes me feel, what if I just stop doing that? Or what if I (laughs) transgress this in some way and model it? And the cool thing about everything being, anything associated with being a man being a masculinity, um, which obviously, but like (laughs) the cool thing about that is that then you can enlarge what being masculinity means by people like behaving in whatever way they feel is the masculinity they want to have. And I think that you know, like there's a, in the book, there's like a description of this experiment that the um, sociologists do with boys. It's really heartbreaking actually. It's called the man box. And they do it with like 10 year old boys and they, they draw like a box or whatever on a, they don't have overheads anymore, but you know, whatever that is, <laughs> whatever people use now to project a computer uh, projection, you know, whatever. They use an iPad and they do a pencil. Um, but they ask like boys, like, you know, what qualities do you associate with, with being a man? And so boys say things like, domination or um, aggression or, um, you know, like winning or whatever. And it's like all this stuff that's like a very limited box of stuff, which is the man box. And so that's what goes in there. But then they ask them like, think about a man you admire, like, you know, your dad or your coach or like somebody in your life that you think is great. And like, you know, what qualities are not in the box that he has. And so then they'll say things that are just like human qualities, like, oh, he's really nice. He's really like there for me. He's like, um, you know, he um, is, you know, whatever. He's like loving, he's like affectionate. And so like that, even that discrepancy, it's like children understand the difference between what we tell men to be and, and what the men we love actually are. So if, if they understand that and if they understand that they're still supposed to be in the box, like we're doing something really wrong. So we need to figure out how to expand that box so that people don't go, well, a real man fits in the box and then everyone who's transgressing it is just 
I don't know, taking a risk or like having to use the cover of, for example, violence to like like boxing to show that they can be intimate, you know, in any other kind of context. So to me, like, I know I'm not answering your question exactly, but I think I really wanted to come through my own transition, be on the other side of it, and say, at the end of the day, I'm still myself, you know? And I felt like it took seven years to even be able to like reconnect with the person I was before my transition in terms of like the things I didn't want to lose because I felt like the, the culture we live in was just taking, that, taking those parts away from me and I didn't want to lose them. And so that was the book. The book was about trying to make sure I came back to myself and that's my masculinity. Uh, one reason I think this book is so important, and you have a you have a large body of work that does this, is pushing back against the idea of like there being kind of like a trans narrative, like yeah. singular. Um, and you know, this book is really about like a long and continuous process of like asking the question of like what kind of person do I want to be, like what kind of identity do I want to inhabit in the world. And um, I'm curious about now that you are um, on the other side of this boxing experience if there's like a different set of questions that you're like thinking about or plagued by not to like be too therapy about it but you know I'm, I'm just kind of curious totally about like the next, with you the next step this. no my god no <laughs> <laughs> not licensed um but you know like I do I do really appreciate how you kind of show that like you know like life is transition for everyone, like whether or not, you yeah. know, like that happens in different ways and in different, you know, relationships to gender for different people. But like truly like, you know, you're still in an ongoing evolving relationship with this, I have to imagine, yeah. with your gender and with masculinity. So um, I would love to hear about where you're at now. Hmm. Well, so I like had this hope for this book that I would write it and then everyone would realize that they have a gender. And then it would be great because I would talk to people and I would be like, you have a gender, I have a gender, not just trans people, not just yeah. women, not just cis women. Uh, we all have genders and we're all going to have these conversations. And, and that's worked to some degree. I actually feel like I am having that conversation more. But I'm still amazed at how often, especially with cis men, there's sort of, and I get it because if your identity is based in the idea that masculinity is a thing that exists that you aspire to because it's real and you need to be real and therefore you need to like embody this masculinity in a certain way. There can be a way that I think it, it's a refusal to have empathy for people who are not having that experience or not buying into that way of thinking. And so I guess what I'm thinking a lot about right now is like, how do I, like, I mean, this is just like a super honest answer in a bookstore, yeah. but whatever. But like, I, <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about like, <laughs> you know, like media narrative still, because I've been doing media for this book and I, um, and I, I am a reporter and I understand how we frame stories. Mm -hmm. and. I know immediately if I'm doing an interview and someone says, so, um, good to meet you, Thomas. Let's start with, when did you first know that you weren't a girl? Uh, that's like the, like, that's the first question. And if that's the first question, I know where it's all going. And I know that, like, it doesn't matter. I wrote a book. We talk, you know, all this stuff's on there. Like, it's about gender. We all have a gender. All like, of that stuff. Go to Amazon.com or IndieBound.com <laughs> right. or walk down the street to a bookstore and purchase Please just read the, the book. book I wrote about yeah, this. Know, like, yeah. It's very frustrating. <laughs> but it makes me realize how, um, just how dedicated people are, I think, still to this idea that, like, only trans people have genders, yeah. you know, or only only cis women have genders. And so I, I'm trying to figure out, one of the questions I'm thinking about a lot is like, how do I, for everyone's sake, figure out, like find a way to reach to people who are feeling that way, even after they engage with this material. Even, mm -hmm. you know, if you walk away from it and you think, interesting story about a trans guy, 
Like, I feel like, how do I get you to understand that, like, you actually are part of this culture? And in fact, it would be your, to your benefit to see that you're, you know, the coolest thing about realizing you have a gender is realizing you can liberate yourself from expectations about gender identity and your, your kids and your coworkers and your friends. Like, this is like a, this is a, literally a system of power. Uh, and it's not an innate thing, which is not to say you can't have an identity. I have an identity. Uh, you can't not, it, it's not, it just means that like you have options and choices and freedom about how you want to live your life. And so that's what I'm thinking a lot about is like, how do I, how do I reach that person who, who, who engages with this material, but then still says like, you know, that's not really about me, you know? And so, yeah, that's, that's that kind of question. Yeah. Other kind of questions I think about though are, are just like, you know, about my, now that I have this framework, it's really cool. I feel like I can just go into any situation and instead of like having to perform my competency, I can say like, I have no idea what I'm fucking talking about. People love it. <laughs> <laughs> People think it means that I'm so confident that I can say it, and, but it really just means that I feel more comfortable being like, I literally don't know what's going on most of the time. And I it's do actually think very helpful. confident people admit like when so. they don't know <laughs> yeah i maybe. think that's a hallmark of confidence okay really. well great yeah i mean <laughs> awesome <laughs> not that you need my affirmation no i just, mean it's, yeah. i love your affirmation <laughs> but i i do feel like i've what i've realized from writing the book is that i can just keep asking questions right. and that's like i i i don't know i think especially being a man you're not supposed to have questions questions you're supposed to have answers mm. and it was one thing that I felt really weird about about male socialization and being able to resist that mm -hmm. is awesome Ugh. hugs and questions yeah that is the perfect segue um if any of you have a question you can raise your hand and ask it I have a question rule though I have to tell you oh great please um, I've only had to use it like twice my my question rule is any question you ask me I can ask you back <laughs> But I will only do that if you ask me a really fucking weird question. No offense. And I'll say, though, one time I did that, and I thought the question was really weird, but actually it was, it was not weird. But I'm glad I asked back. I can tell the story if people care. Okay. Tell it, and then everyone can think of a question okay, while you tell, tell it. Yeah. <laughs> I did this, like, workshop. I don't normally do this, but it was, like, a, a trans one-on-one workshop at this, like, LGBT senior center. Uh, and it was LG, it was really LG Senior Center, uh, and it was like the group of these like seniors uh, who were very sweet, but like kind of like I don't know if they were like really following along with what what I was talking about. And then at the very end, this person raised raised their hand and they said, um, "Do you have a male brain or a female brain?" And I was like. <laughs> And it was like this like record screech, like, and I just was like, oh man, I just went through all this stuff and like that's what you're, and I was super like uncomfortable. And, but then I remembered my role and I remembered that I told them the role. So I was like, do you have a male brain or a female brain? And they said, well, I thought I had a female brain, but now I'm listening to you talk and I'm realizing I might have a male brain. And I was like, oh, you think you're trans? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, personally, I was like, actually, there's no such thing as a male and a female brain. Like, that's yeah. not actually. But I hear you, and that's an interesting way of thinking about it. And that's not what I thought you were going for with the question. So. <laughs> Language is imperfect. It's yeah, imperfect it is. Instrument. And that's, that's yeah. why it's good to have that kind of role. Yeah. Because maybe I'm wrong, and I'm misunderstanding you. Right. <laughs> But anyway, didn't mean to scare you guys. I, <laughs> if you have, yes. Yes. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, one really cool thing about the book has been that um, the guys I trained with have, are big fans of the, the book. Um, they came to my uh, my book party um, and were like, <laughs> it was like really great. Like it was like a, a crew of boxing guys, like just at this like Brooklyn Historical Society book launch who were just really pleased to be there. And, and they felt very like important, I think. And, and my coach has remained my friend and he's like, a huge fan of everything of the book and of like everything I've been doing. So, um, so that was like a cool surprise. I didn't know that that would happen. Um, and then the organization that put on the event has been like email blasting people about it and like letting everyone know about the book. So, uh, so actually I found a lot of support within that very small world, but yeah, obviously there's like the, the you know, the people who own the gym, like, I don't think they know about the book. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, is your question like what, do I feel about them not having read it, or? Yeah. Yeah. How do you do that? Um, well, you know, actually, I think that the guys that are in the book are great ambassadors. Like they're still training, and they like are. They're all, like I said, they've been very supportive in a way that I wasn't expecting, to be honest, because I didn't come out to people as trans. So they sort of found out um, as the book came out. And so it was like interesting to see that reaction. And I wasn't sure where that would go. And it's, they've really rallied around me. And, um, and you know, part of like why trans visibility, for example, is so important is because most people don't know a trans person or don't know they know a trans person. So having all of these folks who read the book and then, you know, sort of speak to that like within the gym, that's been really cool. Um, but I hear you on the larger level of like, wouldn't it be great if all of these guys like were thinking deeply about their masculinities and, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, th I think what I can do is, is find, like, I try really hard to create something that things that are accessible and universal and hope that people will like find themselves in it and then pass it on, you know? And I think that's like my slice that I can kind of like contain without losing my mind uh, so that's what I tried to do but I really do hope that some of the people I trained with are are having a different conversation about this stuff and I know from talking to them that they are which is really cool yeah they have a gender they have a gender yeah <laughs> yeah Yeah, so the cover is by uh, this artist named Xavier Chapani, and he and I worked together on my first book, too. And on the column I'm um, writing for Condé Nast's Them, um, he is a trans guy himself, and he's an illustrator and is a fucking genius. I don't know. He, I'm very lucky that we're <laughs> friends. And <laughs> uh, Michelle T. actually found him. She was my editor on my first book, and she found him like through the internet, and that's how we ended up with him on the first book. And then he, um, I asked... I asked that he do this cover, and uh, Scribner was nice enough to like work with me and him on that. And um, the cover. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. you know, it's like I think that they they did the actual art direction with him, but he as I think you know what, he's a trans guy. He understood like the concept and the ideas. So yeah. Oh, was that interesting? I don't know. I actually have no idea. <laughs> I, yeah, that's interesting. I wasn't like consulted on that level of detail around it. Uh, I know I wanted it to be pink, uh, and like, um, and I, you know, I know that we wanted to like find some way to like represent like traditional masculine things, but also like, I assume that there was something. And people who do visual literacy probably know better than me, but like, I'm sure there was something about wanting to like. Um, I don't know. He has other work where he like sort of splinters bodies. 
Um, and I think that that might be a reference to his own gender, so maybe there's something to that. I'm getting some classical sculpture vibes from this. Yeah, show. I think yeah. definitely. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, has my experience changed walking down the street? So, yeah, like, have, are guys still trying to fight me? <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I mean, first of all, guys aren't still trying to fight me. Uh, so that was interesting, which I still think about a lot because I'm like, why was that happening, you know? And I, and I do think a lot about my grief and how I was angry and how I felt like I couldn't express um, the rest of how I was feeling, you know? And I think that that was like creating like some sort of, I do think I was carrying around an energy and people were picking up on it. And other angry people, other angry men were trying to fight me because they were like, you're angry, I'm angry. Like, let's just do this thing, you know? Like, <laughs> um, so I think that that's disappeared. But I also, um, I, uh, I think I, I, I mean, I was always trying to be very mindful of the stuff I was referring to, like around women and stuff, and just feeling um, really conscious of like not wanting to uh, be part of a problem or make other people feel uncomfortable. Um, and I think with the book, like I, I just got to spend a lot more like time and energy thinking about that even more deeply. And uh, there's like a moment in the book where I'm running, and there's like a, a woman I'm running behind, and I realize that like she thinks like she thinks I'm on her ass in a way that's scary, and it's really upsetting to me. And I have to like slow down and um, and like you know, and I just sort of realize like I can't, there's so many things I need to be careful of in this body, and uh, and I I th I think I am. I mean, I'm sure I have room to grow, but I. I think I and my body and space is something I'm trying to be really thoughtful about in this new way. Um, and I think having all that time and energy to think about it with the book was a really helpful sort of mindfulness exercise around doing that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's changed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So the question is about like there's this there's this um, researcher Sarah DiMuccio who like did this great um, study around like Danish men and how Danish men define um, they asked she asked like you know what is what makes a man versus um, what makes a woman and in, the Danes said well what makes a man is someone who's not a boy and in America uh, men said well what makes a man is not being a woman and kind of everything that's wrong probably with our culture can be defined by that. Um, <laughs> women, by the way, who are Danish also said what makes a woman is not being a girl. Um, so just being an adult, basically. Uh, and, you know, this book was really, I really wanted it to be a book about America, about the U.S. And, um, and you know, I started it before the 2016 election, but I think it felt even more prescient and important to think about how 
you know, how this country and white masculinity and how we are in this moment are all, you know, how it's rooted in all of this stuff. And um, so that was my focus. I have, uh, it, this book came out in the UK and I, uh, my other book also came out in the UK and it's been interesting having a different conversation. They're not totally unrelated, but certainly it's like a different um, nuance to the conversation there. And I'm not, I don't, it is getting published somewhere else. I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it yet because I haven't signed anything, but there's like another country that's gonna come out in. Um, so that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't yet like thought about things more globally, but I, I, I think that was definitely like a, obviously our different cultures have different ways of thinking about gender. And um, it's really interesting to think about how much back to like, you know, if you think testosterone makes something some way, like this is all the arguments about how that's not, that's not really true. Or at the very least, it's not very useful, you know? Like it's not useful to spend a lot of time thinking about the thing and who does it, who does it benefit, you know? And who does it hurt when like we say, oh, this is just the natural way men are, you know? Um, because we can obviously look at anything in the animal kingdom and say, this is natural and we don't do that. So, uh, sorry, side note. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting <laughs> to think more deeply about other places too. Yeah. Uh, do you see, I, I assume it was a highly male environment of a boxing gym as being an institution that spends more time trying to sharpen the lines of that man box or like is it a great moment of place where it'll get more work to break that down? Yeah, it was, it was um, shockingly not like a man box actually. <laughs> um, and I think that, like my my understanding, and I, you know, I talked to like sociologists, like as I was reporting the book out, and that was the the sort of the the theory was like, you know, it, it, the cover of violence makes room for intimacy, which is sad, but also like, therefore, there I felt like I had way more intimacy with men than I'd ever had outside of my brother, you know, uh, with the guys I was training with, because there was no threat to anyone's masculinity. Like you're already doing the most masculine thing you can do, you know? So like no need to like defend it, you know? And so I felt like it was a much more um, like affectionate, much more um, supportive, much more like, you know, I, uh, also like with boxing, like people were always asking me like how I felt and I was in grief. So like it was pretty great to be surrounded by people who every day, five hours a day were like, are you eating? Are you, you know, like <laughs> how, are, how are, you know, you seem a little off today. Like, are you sleeping okay? Like what's going on at home? Like, you know, you seem like you're not feeling so sure of yourself. Like it was just a level of intense emotional engagement um, because you need it for the sport. But I also think probably because people need that period and it was a way to make sure that, you know, you got it. Yes. Yeah. Like men? Or, or all of us? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think there's been like a lot of research around like, you know, creativity comes in spaces where there's like emotional safety and then emotional safety allows you to take risks. So, uh, so the question was like, if you aren't in a boxing gym, like how do you find a way to like have that kind of intimacy and risk taking? And, um, and I think men have a different set of, you know, socialized things to overcome around that. And like sport, sports can be a way to do that. But I think in general, like, um, 
to me, what was working about being in that boxing in that boxing environment was being surrounded by people who um, were willing to do a lot of like internal work because you kind of had to, <laughs> and like show up for each other every day and sort of make space in a safe way for people to like, I mean, the violence was consensual and in sparring, which is most of the training, you're not really trying to hurt anyone, you're just trying to help them. So like being in this sort of group dynamic where everyone is like trying to help each other and where they're showing up every day and it's not about like how you know perfect you are, or how good you are at performing, but like actually about like working collaboratively to get better at something, you know? Like, and then looking at yourself and really being like, where am I, um, where do I need to grow? You know, I think it's like all the stuff that we all know we need, like spiritually, to be better people. But like finding places or people with which you can do that kind of work is really important. I'm actually thinking about Anne because uh, if you listen to her <laughs> podcast, "Call Your Girlfriend," like there's a lot about like being, which is a great podcast, and you should all listen to it if you don't already. Um, but there's so much in your podcast actually that reminds me of that in the sense that like you know it's about friendship and it's about holding yourselves and each other accountable and it's about being in groups where like you all do political things together and like have difficult conversations and like think about yourselves and right i mean wouldn't you think that I that's hope so. yeah <laughs> but that to me doesn't seem that different you know in the sense of like like i think we need each other um, and we need to look at ourselves and you need both of those things at once but in a way that doesn't it's not about policing people you know like it's about lifting each other up <laughs> it kind of dovetails off of that, but I'm really interested in the last question you answered in, in the interview process, which was, what are you thinking about now? Mm -hmm. Because I think it's that summarizing of how do we get this men to get to aware of their own sinners, mm -hmm. which is something that I have a really hard time with, because when I have these conversations, it usually ends up in a screaming match of some sort, or like mm -hmm. a defensive conversation, or me shaming the man, um, and I imagine you've done some of this work already, so what are the conversations that go like for you? My favorite conversations are... Well, I mean, the thing is, like, you have to be willing to relate and to open up. And I actually feel like step one is realizing that for a lot of people who've been systemically divorced from their ability to have empathy by our culture at a young age, like, that's kind of actually a hard ask. Like, and I think that having having empathy myself, I'm, like, and sort of understanding how culture works, I try really hard to remember that, you know? And I don't think that means you're not accountable for your behavior. I'm just saying, like, that's a, that's a bigger hill to climb. Um... But I feel like for me, what's worked best is being in conversations with cis men where they will relate about boyhoods. Like, you know, like I was talking to a guy um, for a podcast once and he, you know, we were just talking about like the ways in which you're policed for like how you move through space. And he said, he said to me, I've never even told my wife this. This was on an interview. But he said, I've never even told my wife this, but like I realize when I'm walking around because I was teased a lot as a, as a boy, I hold myself a certain way because I kind of swish when I walk, like my, my hips move a certain way. And I, even now as like a 40 year old man, try to hold my body so that my hips don't move, even though it's my natural way of walking. And he seemed so sad, like when he said that, you know? And I felt like, wow, like I bet he hasn't thought about this at all until this moment. And those sorts of things makes, make me think about, about how we're in such a different moments, I think. And, and the level of like kind of just, thinking about never having thought about that until you were 40 years old and realizing your entire body is being like in this uncomfortable position just so people won't, you know, call you gay because it's worse to be gay than to be anything else. Um, 
in toxic masculinity. Like, I think that's how I do it when I, when I can. I try to really hold that that's, like, a really different conversation than my, like, queer feminist friends and, like, the things we're talking about, you know? And I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good answer, but I, I just try to stay in... I try to realize that people are coming at this from different places and what you don't know what you don't know. But for me, like if you are exposed to something and then you still refuse it, I think that's my bar of like my empathy extends really far. But then like that's why I'm like, okay, if you don't even want to engage, then you know, we can't have a conversation. But if you're willing to just just come forward a little bit, that to me feels like a better start than being like, you know, you're privileged and you don't understand what you're doing and you know that that usually makes people defensive and we can't get very far from there. I think showing that cis men that that gender hurts them too, gender expectations hurt them too, even though that we I benefit from masculinity, uh, but I also feel like part of what was why I wrote the book is because I also I also felt so aware of the stuff I was talking about like not being touched, you know. That's fucked up. And as young as infancy, um, it's, they, there are studies that men, uh, that sorry, women uh, mothers like don't talk to their uh, baby boys as much as their baby girls. So we start gendering so young, um, in ways that like we just don't know about. We're unconscious of. So I think like starting to make those things conscious, I think, is the beginning of changing the conversation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because of the cover of violence. Yeah, and that's what's so crazy. It's like, and I, I don't know. Maybe everyone here is totally like never thought about this, but I was always so like surprised by how often athletes touch each other. You know, like in sports, and um, the, and people joke, you know, it's homoerotic, etc. I don't think it's homoerotic at all. I think it's actually men want to touch each other, but we tell them not to. So then there's this one space where it's okay because you're like. I don't know, being aggressive in other ways. And it's really, it's super sad to me. I actually found it really touching, literally, but like really <laughs> touching to be in a, a dynamic where like guys were always hugging me. They were always like, had their arms around me. It was just like the most physical thing. Like, and it just, it felt like, wow, this is probably just what everyone always wants to be doing. But what we, but in this particular context, it's safe. Right. One more I don't know yet. <laughs> I, I, I'm really interested in monsters, but I don't know what that means exactly yet. <laughs> All right, we have we can. That was a quickie, right. so go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, like what 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 can cis guys do? <laughs> um, no, I don't think there's any one thing, but I think that uh, genuinely, I think this process was helpful, and it seems like it's potentially as universal applications of like, you know, um, thinking really deeply about like where do you feel a dissonance with yourself? Like this is like an inside thing. Like, but where in your life are you walking around in the world, and where do you feel in yourself? Like, I'm behaving in a way that doesn't actually feel right. You know, like I don't, 
I'm not happy with this. I don't feel um, I don't feel good about it. And that is probably the red flag. That's like you're there. And this, of course, also works around like race and class and all the other ways that like we live in cultures where we're we're, we're living in a culture where we've been internalizing things about ourselves and each other that like we didn't choose. We didn't choose. It's an education we got about our culture. So. If you are a cis man and something is going on and you're like, this is just, I'm uncomfortable. Like, I think just like sit with that discomfort. Uh, we didn't talk about this at all, but like there's this sort of narrative of like good men and bad men that drives me fucking crazy because I feel like once you have that, like you, there's no conversation, right? You just aspire to be the good man or pretend like you're being a good man or anything about you that feels like it doesn't fit into the good man box. You push it away, you know, um, and that doesn't allow for any change or growth to happen, you know? So there's plenty of things that are probably happening to you literally every day. They were for me and continue to be, where you're like, you know, that just doesn't feel right. I don't like, I don't like this thing that just happened to me or that was expected of me or that I just did in response to this. And instead of it, instead of it ending there, like it's worth, I think, asking why. Like what, 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 what was that about? Who expects that from me? Why do they expect that from me, you know? And, and I think that that process is actually um, the spiritual process, but it's also one where I think anybody can offer then like an education to the rest of us. You know, I think we have human you know, brain power and we can all work together to change things by just flagging like what's not working and that's how change actually happens. Oh my God, the perfect ending. <laughs> perfect. Thank, Thank you, you all for coming. <laughs>